when we sat down this morning and Debbie got the bulletin and first thing she said was, where's Colossians? Um, you know, God is perfectly capable of, of heading in any direction he'd like. And um, God willing, we'll pick back up later. Um, but this is very familiar on Psalm 139, these... Um, And something that occurred to me as I was studying this again, the prayer that, that this leads to at the, the latter part of chapter 139 in Psalms where, where David prays to search me, O God, and know my heart and to try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Somebody's not going to pray that prayer unless they know the God that they've just described in the other verses. And I think there's three things here that we can pick out of it, that we can uh, deduce from the, the previous verses, three characteristics of God, of God three aspects of, of his nature, or three attributes. And the first one of those from verses one through six is basically his omniscience. God knows everything there is to know about everything and everybody. There's not a thing about your life that God doesn't know. And some people are blessed by that. Those that know him are blessed by that because we know we can't, we can't hide a thing from him. That when, when we confess our sins, we're confessing something he already knows. And so there's never a reason to try to hide anything from God. In fact, it was a comfort to David because he says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. But you know, some people would be terrified of the fact that God knows every thought of your, in your mind. You never have to even voice it. God knows you inside and out. Every thought you have, every thought you've ever had, every thought you ever will have, God knows it. I mean, Jesus said, you don't have to commit adultery. You can just thought of lust. You've already committed adultery. So our hearts are wide open before God. And that's a comfort to David, but it's a terror to some people. So his, um, his, uh, his omniscience, the, last, the latter part in uh, verse 13 and on, it said, for you form my inward substance. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is also omnipotent. God spoke and everything was. He spoke everything in creation. God speaks and it happened. That also was a comfort to David because he said, um, how pre verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How vast a number of them. Those things, the, 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 the nature and the attributes of God here are a, are a comfort and a blessing to David, whereas some people, they're not. But the one I want us to really look at this morning is God's, in, in verses uh, 7 through 12, God's omnipresence. The fact that God is present everywhere, that's, where the word omni, it's a Latin word, it means all. God is present everywhere at all times and full, and, and full of who he is. When God is, God is present, every, no matter where we are, God is just as present. Listen, God is just as present, just as present at the club as he is here. God is just as present in the gutter with that drug addict as he is right here. Now, he manifests that differently depending on what's on the people. He manifests what his will is. God doesn't always manifest himself. But we want him to. As a believer, we want God to manifest himself through us, to, set, to show other people who he is. That, in fact, that's, if you, you can pick a theme of the Bible, there's all kinds of ways to describe what this book is about. But one, thing, one way we can look at it, and I think it's, we can see it as we go through here, that what God is doing is he is reestablishing. He's reestablishing his presence in our lives that was lost in the garden. What was lost in the garden of Eden, what Adam lost in his sin, 
God will restore. God's going to restore it. And the three scriptures, we can look at a lot of them, but I want to look at three scriptures in particular, and we begin to see this. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And this is when God had created Adam and, and Eve. He had already blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply. And he t- in verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, I want you to just imagine. I, I have been to some places where there was, um, years ago when Opryland was, was still going, I mean, the people they hired to, um, to decorate and to plant, you know, they, you go to some of these gardens and things that, that people that really know what they're doing. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible, the beauty of these places. Can you imagine the beauty in the Garden of Eden that God himself planted? Can you imagine? I, I mean, it, we, we just can't even fathom what God would have done. God didn't just plant there that for, uh, for like fruitful trees to eat. He planted for beauty as well. I mean, there, I don't care who you are. We can't, we're no match for God's beauty. Look at verse 15. It said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God was, so, was in such close fellowship with Adam. I mean, they just walked together. And, it, and over in chapter 3, look, secondly, in chapter 3, verse 8, this is when they, when they fell. Look, in chapter 3, verse 8, it said, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Obviously, this was something that took place regularly. God would come walking through the garden, not physically, but his presence would be there. And Adam would fellowship together. The closeness there, there was nothing to stand between Adam and his creator, and it had to have been sweet and precious beyond imagination. Beyond imagination. But the latter part of that verse, it said, the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. You see, that's what happens when, when our hearts were fed, when, the heart, when they fell, they hid from God. They were, they were afraid of God. They were scared of his presence. And you know, people today are still afraid of God's presence. They don't want God to be present. It's a painful thing for a sinner to be present in the, in the, to be in the presence of a holy God. Ask Isaiah. Read Isaiah chapter 6. It was his undoing. R.C. Sproul says that to encounter the holiness of God is a traumatic thing. And unless you've met a holy God, you've not met God. You've not met him. So he cast him out of the garden. But that's not the end of it. Look in Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to fill in the blanks here in just a minute. Bear with me. All right, so we start off in close fellowship. Adam gets kicked out of the garden. Now what happens in the end? Look in chapter 21 of Revelation, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what all this is moving towards, a day when the... Listen, it doesn't say man would dwell with God. Look, did you catch God will dwell with man. That's right now is what God is preparing people for is to be the dwelling place of God himself. Do you know that? God's desire is to dwell within you as a believer. 
That's God's desire. That's the reason Jesus came and gave his life for those that, for his sheep and that his sheep, he wants to dwell within us. And this ought to be the day that we look forward to. This is the time when, that ought to be the greatest day in all, and that we look forward to in our lives is the day when, when he comes down to dwell with us. Where there's nothing between us. You know what that's like, right? Any of you that are married knows what that's like. Don't you? When things aren't right? Don't you know what that's like? I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Me and we know that. You know, you, you say something to your wife and she kind of gives you that sideways look and kind of, huh? And you know you've done something. And most of us have no idea what it is. But we know something's wrong. We know something's wrong. And, you know, sometimes we, we just go ignore it and, you know, or if you like me, you're a pain because you want to fix it. You want to fix it right now. And I've learned sometimes it's better just to wait a little while. Um, I, don't wait with God. Don't wait. When there's something wrong, get it right. So again, it's one of the main things running throughout all of Scripture is God's work to restore, listen, an uninhibited welcome into his presence. Something where we don't have to worry about what's between us and him. A time we can just walk and we can just be right there with him when there's nothing separating us, nothing coming between us, nothing that interferes with that relationship with the holy God that is so holy. Listen, that the seraphim, with six wings, listen, it says that with two they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. These are created holy beings, and they cover their face because of the holiness of God. Can you imagine? A created holy being that covers his feet and, and acknowledges the fact that I am just created And all they do is shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty as they circle his throne. Folks, when the holiness of God begins to grip us, you will not be the same. We will not be the same. God is working through, and, and he's working this, he's working all this out, listen, through fallen, sinful people that he has redeemed. That's what he's done. And in Genesis chapter 8, I mean chapter 12, real quick, go look at three people real quick. And then we're going to move on. Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, verse chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, I mean, Abram, go from your country to your, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Look at this. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now look at verse chapter 26, verse 24. And this is talking about Isaac. It said, and God appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Look, for I am with you. You see God's presence. He said, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob, look at chapter 28, verses 14 and 15. Now this is Isaac. Remember who Isaac was? He was a cheat. Remember how he, did? he was born hanging on to his brother's foot. He cheated, Isaac. He cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. He lied and deceived his father and received the father, Isaac's blessing. What a conniver he was. I mean, he just, he cheated, he lied, he was a conniver, he, he, he stole what was not his. 
And look what God tells him in chapter four, uh, chapter 28, verse 14 and 15. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I am with you. Listen, I don't care where you are this morning in your life. I don't care what you've done. I do not care what wicked things you've done in your past. God is able to make you a, re, a, a recipient of his presence. Do you know that? I don't care what you've done. There's not a person here this morning that deserves God to be able to say, I am with you. Not a person here. Not a person ever has been born. There never will be one born that's worthy of God saying, I'm with you. And I will be with you. I am with you and will keep you. Not only am I with you, but I'll keep you. Wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. My goodness. Folks, listen, you can take God at his word. You can take God at his word. He can tell you the same. Look, I will not, I will not leave you until I've done exactly what I promised for you, and that is to bring you into my presence. He won't stop. He will not stop. The Lord has continually worked throughout all of history, and let us, it's all to bring about what he promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When he told the serpent, I mean, we told he said uh, uh, that there will be one born of a woman who, remember? The serpent would bruise his heel, but he would bruise the serpent's head. Everything's moved to accomplish what God said. And God will fulfill his promise. Isaiah 7, 14. Remember what it said? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. That's exactly what God is working for. And it happened. We're told in, in, in the book of Matthew, when the, when the angel appeared to Joseph and told him, said, your pregnant betrothed one is going to bear a son and you're going to call him Jesus. And he will save his people from their sin. Emmanuel, God with us. So there's three, and there's three aspects, this presence of God with us. Listen, I want you to, there's three aspects of it I want us to look at this morning. The first one is this, it's inescapable. It is inescapable. The presence of God is absolutely inescapable. Look in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, we're told the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. You know, you may think you're living up under, the, under God's radar. You're not. You're not. God knows every single thing you do. Is that a comfort? Or is it troubling? Folks, I can't answer that for you. If you have ears to hear, you better listen. You better listen. It's the fact that God keeps watch over every single person and every single thought you have and every desire you have, every longing you have, everything you lust after in this life. For God to know that, is that a comfort or is it a threat? Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24. He said, am I God at hand, declares the Lord, not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God feels heaven and earth. We may think we're somewhere where God isn't. I remember when our son got out of the service. I don't know if Debbie remembers this or not, but he took a job with a contractor, a medical equipment contractor up in New York. And I remember we, they came down here, and uh, when they moved down here, and he got a job at Murray, Murray Regional Hospital. And I remember we were in a service at, at Solid Rock one day, 
And Sonny Mills, the pastor there, asked him, he's, you know, down here there's a church on every corner. You know how? I mean, you just can't swing a dead cat without hitting a church. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. Well, up there, it wasn't that way. You get someplace up north, you can't find a church. At least not one where people preach the word. And Sonny asked him, said, well, Stephen, was God there? And, and Stephen in his way, he said, well, no. Now, much to Stephen's surprise, yes, God was. Yes, he is. God is everywhere. We may not sense him. Doesn't mean he's not there. Doesn't mean he's not there. There's also consequences for God's presence. There are consequences to it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, the Bible has some themes that just run all the way through. And one of them is that your life is an open book before God. You can hide it from people. You know those little quirks that I have, that you have? We can hide them from people. We can kind of keep them hidden. Not so with God. Your life is more open before God than you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. Look, Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, Jesus said, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Does that terrify anybody? Knowing that one day I'll stand before Christ and I'll have to give an account for every careless word I've uttered. No wonder James said, be slow to speak. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. Too often I'm too quick to speak and too slow to hear. Everything that comes out of that mouth, I'm going to give an account for. Every one of us will. So how is this presence manifested? Are y'all with me? Okay. All right. Look back at Genesis, I mean, Exodus chapter three for just a minute. I love this account of Moses. It's just, you know, Moses, when the Israelites were being tormented by the Egyptians, I said, Moses went out one day to, to see his, you know, his people. And he said he saw one, uh, an, I mean, uh, an Egyptian striking a, a, one of his, his brothers, and he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Well, things came about that he got found out and he ran. But he thought, the reason he did is he thought that the people of Israel, the Jews would know that God was going to deliver them by his hand. See, Moses thought God was going to use him. Now, we're not told that in Exodus. We're told that in Acts. But he got caught. And he thought, well, maybe I missed God's call. And so he ran. And then God met him at a burning bush. You remember? Exodus, I mean, yeah, Exodus chapter 3. Look at verse 12. God came to him in the, and told him he's going to send him. Look at, back up verse 11. It said, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, look, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Every excuse Moses had. Look at verse 11. Excuse me. Um, and we have 11 through 16. Um, let me go ahead and read verse 15. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord God is of your fathers, the God of Abraham and God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I shall be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather Israel, uh, the elders together, 
and stated to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and water. God promised Moses that he was going to be with him and lead them out of there. And every excuse Moses made, just about every one of them God countered with, but I am with you. You know, and Moses finally learned that lesson. And you remember as they led them out, listen, as they came out of Egypt, remember how the Israelites responded? They complained and griped about everything that happened to them. Three days into the wilderness, they were complaining that they didn't have any water. A few days after that, when God fed, fed them with manna, the very bread from heaven, and they complained about it, they were tired of what God gave them to eat. You ever, do you ever get that way? You ever around somebody that all they do is complain no matter what God seems to do? It's never enough. And that's what the Israelites did. They just kept complaining. So Moses, God calls Moses up to the mountain. He gonna, he's going to give them the law. And while he's up there, remember what happens? Is the Israelites get with Aaron and they say, look, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Take all of our gold jewelry and make us a, Make us a bull that we can, we can worship. Because we don't know what's happening, but we need something tangible to worship. And look how Moses responds in chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up by the lands of Egypt to the land I swore to give you. To your offspring I will give it. I'll send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to what he says. But I will not go up with you lest I consume you on the way for your stiff-necked people. So Moses tells, I mean, God tells Moses, you, you going up, I'm going to send an angel with you, but I'm not going up there with you because if I do, I will consume you stiff-necked people. You'll never make it if I go with you. That's, that's incredible. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw all the miracles that God did. They saw, the, they saw God deliver them when, on, the, um, on Passover. God, that God did everything in the world for them. And they said, it's not enough. Look at verse 11 through 16. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now look, here's this Moses. Listen to what Moses said. Now this is the same Moses that balked every time God told him, I'll be with you. He came up with another excuse. Now look what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name and have found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider, too, that your nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, look at Mo, what he says in verse 15. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your... Uh, back up, pardon. Verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Folks, listen. Have you ever been that desperate for God's presence in your life? Have you ever been that desperate for, for God's presence to be with you? You know what we end up doing? We end up planning something and doing something, and then we ask God to bless it. Bless it with your presence. God, would you do that? Here's what we're planning on doing. Mo God took Moses and gave him a task that was so beyond any human's capability and said, now Moses, go, I'll be with you. Folks, listen, it doesn't matter what God calls you to do. If God's presence is with you, it will get done. And it will get, get done in his way, and he will get the glory for it, not you. And the problem is this, we, we gauge what God wants us to do by what our own capabilities are. 
God never calls somebody to do something they can do in and of themselves. The, our problem is we don't trust him to come through. Moses had to go through all he went through. He had to put up with these stiff-necked people. And he finally got to the place where he said, not making excuses, he just finally said, God, I'm going to stay right here. And I'll not move another step unless I know you're with me. If your presence doesn't, I'll die right here in this sand. Listen, would you rather die in the desert, in the sand with God's presence, or would you rather make it to the land of milk and honey on your own? Some of us would rather be in the land of milk and honey on our own. You understand what I'm saying? Listen, wherever God is, wherever his presence is, folks, it's heaven. You understand that? I don't mean literally. I'm talking about, listen, the peace of God abides where God is, where his presence is. You don't have to turn there, but listen, Paul understood this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to pick up verse 14. It said, he's writing to the, uh, young Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deed. He said, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but des all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You know, Paul, what, he wasn't bitter against people that abandoned him. He wasn't. You ever had somebody abandon you you thought would be with you? They'll be loyal. They'll stay with it. They won't abandon me. You know what? When they abandoned him, he said, Lord, don't. It's all right. Look how he finishes up, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You know my problem? A lot of our problem is we're too busy trying to defend ourselves for God to ever intervene. We're too busy trying to defend ourselves to just sit back and say, God, it's your hand. It's in your hand. <laughs> Lastly, his presence should be sought. We are to seek his presence. That's what Psalm 105 says. He says, seek the Lord while he and his strength. Seek his presence continually. And if you'll go through and read the Bible, you'll see it. A lot of times in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word for presence and the Hebrew word for face are the same word. They're the same Hebrew word. In other words, you can equate God's presence with his face. And what that means is he, when he looks on you with favor, when he looks on you with, with, with grace, when he looks on you with acceptance, when he looks on you with welcome, that means that you're welcome and he was present. You know what I'm talking about. Again, men, you've got that look before? Is it a look of welcoming or is it a look of, well, you big doofus, you did it again. I, you know, that's what we can tell a lot by what, how we accept it before somebody else by the way they look at it. Can we not? By the way they look at it. And when we seek God's face, what we're saying, we're seeking his acceptance. We're seeking him. Psalm 70, uh, 27, verse 8 says, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. We're to seek his pleasure. We're to seek his presence in our lives. So how, how do we do that? How do we seek his presence? Uh, there's, so, there's so much written in, in God's word about God's presence and in being with his people. It was hard for me to, to scale this down, to fit it into a, a single sermon. I mean, this thing could be a, I, I know God's presence and what it means for us could, could be a book. Could be a book. But it's in Isaiah chapter 59. 
This is the place we start. So we need to understand, first place, in order to seek him, we've got to understand this one thing. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his faith from you that he does not hear. Do you ever feel like God's distant? It doesn't always mean this. Sometimes, sometimes God is distant, and there's not sin is the problem. God seemed distant to Job, did he not? He seemed distant to Job. Sin wasn't Job's problem. I can't say the same thing for me. I can't say the same thing for you. It may be possible, but one of the reasons maybe the heavens seem like brass is because we've regarded sin in our heart. We've never got right. We've never sought him. You know, one, one of the reasons that Pharaoh was so rebellious and God's call to let his people go is that when there was a plague and he, he asked Moses, he said, well, look, take the frogs away, take the flies away, pray that a God will take the gnats away and all the other. Every time he did, there was a respite. You know what I mean? There was a time there where all of a sudden the problem was, wasn't there and Pharaoh lost his desperation. That's what can happen to us. We come face to face with a holy God. We realize things aren't right. And this sin weighs on us. And we deal with it. Then we, we begin to just kind of push it aside and push it aside. And God backs off for a little bit. And we think, well, okay, I'm all right. No. You just got a little bit of break. You got a little bit of respite. God's, listen, God won't give up. I can tell you. Remember a few weeks back I told you, I think it was C.S. Lewis that called him the hound of heaven. Listen, if God wants you, he'll have you. But I'll tell you something, it may not be pretty. It may not be pretty. James chapter 4. Listen to what James says. You want to know what it takes to seek him? James chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. Humble yourself. You know, the place, the place we've got to go in order to meet God, in order for his presence to be real in us, is at the bottom. It's at the bottom. And I want you to look at one more scripture, one more portion of scripture that I believe spells this out better than anywhere else in God's word that I know of. And it's Isaiah chapter 57. And Isaiah chapter 57 Look at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. I don't think anybody would argue with that, would they? A holy God dwells in a holy place. An exalted God dwells in an exalted place. That's where he reigns. He reigns there where the seraphim covered their face and they covered their feet. With, with the wings and they fly with the other two. It's a place where the, that's all they do is circle the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
That's where the seraphim are, and that's where God dwells. But listen, God has limited himself. Listen, God dwells in two places. He dwells in an exalted place in the heaven. But also, look what he says, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Our problem is we don't want to let ourselves get down that far. We don't, want to let it, we, don't want to let, we don't want to let God get us to the point where we're so absolutely broken. You know that word contrite basically can mean ground to powder. Have you ever felt like God was grinding you to a powder? Listen, it's not to kill you. It's not to hurt you. The problem is we are so full of ourselves, so full of pride that that's what it takes to get us to the place where we will actually look up and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know that? We don't want God to hurt us that way. You know, what's the, I, I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, it is doubtful whether God can ever use anyone greatly until he hurt, has hurt him deeply. God will hurt you before he can work with you. That's painful, is it not? But folks, that's, that's what Isaiah said. Jesus said the same thing for a believer. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. You know what it means to be poor in spirit? It means to realize you don't have a thing in this world to offer God either before or after your redemption. As a believer, you don't have anything to offer except yourself. Poor in spirit means we realize how broken we are, how undone we are, as Isaiah said. We realize that. And we have to cast that all on him or we know it's hopeless. It's hopeless without him. That's where Moses got to. God, if you don't leave me up from here, just... I'd rather stay right here with your presence than go anywhere else without it, even with an angel. Listen, can you imagine an angel leading you somewhere? You'd go, we'd go happily, wouldn't we? I mean, if, if, if Michael, the archangel, came down and said, let's go this way. Wait a minute, Michael, where's the Lord? Well, he's still up there. We're going, no, we're not either. I don't care if you and Gabriel and every... Every archangel in heaven comes until God himself says, I'm with you. I'm not going. And you know, when a church is full of people that said, without God, we're not, we're not moving. And you know what? But listen, the church is made up of individuals. I can't imagine what a, what a church would be like if every single person there said, God, I'm not moving out of your presence. I'm not going to leave you. God, you tell me where you are and I'll be there. I want to be there. No matter how painful, listen, no matter how painful, Paul was in prison when he wrote, when he wrote to Timothy. But God stood with me and strengthened me. Would you rather be in a place where it was easy? Or would you rather be in prison knowing God was with you? Uh, to me, it's black and white. To me, it's black and white. I mean, our nature wants to kind of get it somewhere in the middle, right? Well, God, I don't want to be in prison, but I don't want to be yeah, just somewhere here where, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm not messing up too bad, but, you know, I, I don't want to be asked too much of me. You don't put me in a position where I really have to Folks, that's where it's real. But it starts, it starts with what James said. We need to have some holy howling 
howling about her sins. To, to get on our faces and say, God, I need your presence in my life. Your manifest presence. Listen, God is, man, God is everywhere. Don't, don't forget that. God is everywhere present, but he is present to bless with those that are broken, with those that are contrite. That doesn't mean you walk around with a sour puss all the time. What it means is this, is you know in and of yourself there's no good thing. That's what Paul said. I know that in me, in, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. The only good thing about us is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And people see Christ in us. People know Christ is in us by the way we live, by the way we respond to other people, knowing things are good. When somebody steals every 40, 20 John Deere you have, how are you going to respond? <laughs> you understand? Listen, that's where who we are. That's where who we are matters. That's when it matters. Because people are paying attention. People pay attention. And how the reason they know, the reason they know that it's real is because of the way we respond. The way we respond. Because we've all of us that claim the name of Christ, we've got a big sign on us that said, look, I claim Jesus. Watch me. Watch me. Listen to me. Listen to me how I respond when people misuse me. Listen to how I respond when the cashier charged me more than I, they should have. And I don't realize it until I get home and look at the receipt and I go back to the customer service counter. How do I? Re you see, folks, every little word I'll give an account for. You see why we need Christ's presence? Every moment. Of every day. Have you ever been brought to that place? High and exalted. It's where he dwells. But he dwells down here. When you're crushed. When you can't even look up. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus said they. They went down to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself thus, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe. I, you know, I give alms. I'm not like other men, especially not like this old dirty tax collector. And all the tax collector prayed was, God have mercy on me, a sinner. See, that tax collector knew himself. The Pharisee didn't. Jesus said the tax collector went down to his house justified. Right with God. Until we see ourselves in need. Until we see ourselves broken. We'll never cry out. We'll never cry out. And that's not just for an unbeliever, folks. Listen. This is something that is ongoing for every believer I know. You don't quit repenting when you make when you receive Christ as your Savior. That's only the beginning. Any believer here will tell you they've repented more after they got saved than they ever did before. It's a continual work. Because the longer you walk with the Lord, brother, I'm going to tell you what, the more dirty you're going to see you are. Contrite. And broke. Who would ever thought that those are the blessed people? Who would ever thought? God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. If you need grace. If you need God's unmerited. Let me back up. We call grace God's unmerited favor. You know what it is? We've done everything we can to demerit God's grace. God doesn't know us great. 
God's favor is for those that are humble. If you want God's favor, if you want to, if you want to know God's face, if you want to know his presence, then it starts on your faith. It starts confessing. It starts understanding how broken we still are. And you know what God does? He receives and he welcomes believer and unbeliever alike, whatever the need is. Isn't God good? He just doesn't do things the way we think he ought to. Do you want his presence, his manifest presence in your life? Do you want his presence to where people just know? You know, one of those people that when others are around, they just think there's just something different about that man. There's just something about that woman that just makes me want to know who God is. There's something about that church that I know I need to be a part of because those people love Christ. They're not arrogant. They're not proud. They don't think they're better than anybody else. Man, you know, the world's looking for that. I know this. This seems awful simple. But it doesn't have to be complicated. We try to make it bigger and more complicated than it is. God just says this. Come unto me. All that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. From me and humble. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not a heavy thing. Heavy is carrying around pride and arrogance. Heavy is carrying around that load that you know you need to leave with God. Would you pray with me? Father, God, you know, you know who here this morning. Have been fighting. God, believer and unbeliever alike have. God, so often we. We withhold from you what we ought to give and it's not money. It's not really our time, Father, what we. What we need to give you is our burden of our heart. And sometimes that burden is the fact that we've been unrepentant for too long. God, I pray that you do a work here this morning that, that only your Holy Spirit can achieve. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen.